What's the true crime story Harper Lee wanted to write and never did? Casey Sepp will join us to talk about her book, Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. How can hydraulic fracking devastate an entire community? Eliza Griswold will be here to discuss her Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Amity and Prosperity, One Family and the Fracturing of America. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the literary world. Plus, our critics will talk about the latest in literary criticism. This is the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Casey Sepp joins us now. She is the author of a new book, her first book. It's called Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. Casey, thanks so much for being here. Of course. Thanks so much, Pamela. I'm a huge fan of the review. It's an honor. So this book is, I think, as the subtitle kind of gives a clue, it's multiple stories. It's kind of a book within a book, and it's a biography and a literary detective story, and it's a true crime tale. How did you come to this subject? I actually came to this story in 2015. I think like a lot of the world, I was so shocked to learn that Harper Lee would be publishing a new book. And that was Gosetta Watchman, the book that was published as her second novel. But I went down to Monroeville to report on that story for The New Yorker because there was so much surprise about that manuscript and questions about its provenance and concerns about her ability to consent to its publication. So I was down there reporting on that when I found out about this other book she tried to write over near the Georgia line in Alex City. And, you know, you don't have to be a very good reporter when somebody on the phone starts telling you about the voodoo preacher their granddaddy defended and then defended the man who shot him. You know, you get very interested very quickly. And when it seems like there might be another manuscript by Harper Lee, you you start looking into it. So I, I came to it in 2015. Was it widely known that she was working on this other book? Well, I think it's an interesting incongruity. Obviously, you know, she had interviewed many people around Lake Martin where these events took place. So they've all known since the 70s and they've been, you know, expecting the book. And in fact, for most of them, when they heard she was publishing a new book, they were just, you know, sure as could be that it was the Reverend. But it was not widely known outside of this area. And she was very private about almost everything, including her writing. So, you know, it had merited some some brief mentions and, you know, there had been a biography of her in 2006 and a memoir by a journalist who lived next door to her. And the, the Maxwell case, this true crime book she'd really sunk her teeth into is just a short part of those books. And so it had never kind of entered the wider consciousness of, of knowledge about Lee. Although, again, for folks around this area, they've just known it their whole lives long. I want to get at the various layers of the book, but just to kind of lay it out, you have the true crime story itself. Then you have the story of Harper Lee writing that story. And then over that layer, why didn't Harper Lee write that story and the story of Harper Lee? And then you then bring full circle the story that she was trying to tell. How do you manage to balance all of that and structure it? It's a great question, and I'm not sure that I have, but of course, you know, one one deliberate thing I did with the structure of the book is is follow the chronology of the story. So the book starts with the Reverend Willie Maxwell, who was accused of murdering five family members for the insurance money, and he was defended in a lot of civil and criminal cases by the same lawyer. And then when he was gunned down at the funeral of his last alleged victim, that same lawyer defended the vigilante who shot him. 
So the second part of the book follows that lawyer's story, and that lawyer is interesting for a lot of other reasons, too. He's a very liberal politician who had been in the state legislature and run for lieutenant governor, so we get a little bit of the political history of mid-century Alabama, and that brings us right up to the moment that Harper Lee met this story. And you know, then we follow her through her reporting and her attempts to write. And with each of them, you know, I go back in time a little bit so you can get to know them and get to know how three people who ostensibly, you know, were born and raised under such similar circumstances, they're all three from small towns in Alabama, could go on to lead such different lives. I mean, obviously, you know, a rural African-American minister in in Alabama and an upper-class lawyer and and then Harper Lee herself, who was from a pretty well-off family in Monroeville, picked up and moved to Manhattan, you, know, you couldn't imagine three, three more different lives. And, you know, they, they meet in this one kind of sensational moment, but I try and manage all those themes and stories just by sticking to the chronology. Well, I don't want to give away the ending because it does read like a kind of detective novel, but let's start with the beginning with the reverend. When was he born and, and who was he before he became a serial murderer? The Reverend was born in 1925, which would be an auspicious year anyway, but in this part of the state, it's it's right when a lot of these hydroelectric power projects are getting started. So for this part of Alabama, it's right when the Tallapoosa River was dammed and Lake Martin was formed. So it's really a time of violence and change, and it's around the time, if folks know Theodore Rosengarten's All God's Dangers the story of Nate Shaw, the sharecropper, that, that's what's happening in this part of Alabama. You know, the sharecropping regime is getting started. Jim Crow is really taking hold. And so here's little Willie Maxwell born alongside what was quickly becoming Lake Martin. And his father was a sharecropper. His mother was a housekeeper. And he was a very talented preacher from a young age. And so he was ordained in the Baptist church. And he did a lot of part-time itinerant preaching, you know, would go from church to church and that's a lot of small towns probably nobody's heard of, although one of them is not a Salga where, if you can believe it, Zora Neale Hurston was born. <laughs> so, oh, wow. you know, there's a really interesting geography that overlaps with his story. But, you know, he had this preaching career and he worked at a textile mill on the side and he pulped wood on the side, but he was renowned for his preaching. And that is what he was known for around the time that his, his first wife was found murdered in 1970. So it was shocking to think that, you know, a minister could have committed this crime. And in fact, it's part of the and even though he was tried, he was acquitted. And that was the first wife to, to be found dead under suspicious circumstances. Another wife was found dead under suspicious circumstances, a brother of his, a nephew of his, and then a stepdaughter of his in 1977. It's astounding that he was acquitted, even though, as you said, he was a preacher, he was known as a, a model citizen, but he also, it became clear, was a womanizer. And the circumstances of that first murder, I want you to talk a little bit about. I mean, this is Harper Lee, as she made clear in To Kill a Mockingbird, not a great time for an African-American to be accused of, of murder and not likely that someone would get off. How did that happen? First of all, you're absolutely right that, that one of the curiosities about this case is obviously there was many a jury in Alabama looking for an excuse to convict a black defendant. And even more strangely, you know, the Reverend prevailed in over a dozen cases of civil litigation because he, you know, the motive for these crimes was ostensibly life insurance policies that he held on these family members. And he prevailed in court over a dozen times by convincing juries that the life insurance companies were just trying to deny 
a modest black minister the the money he was rightfully owed. And so I think on the one hand, you know, it's important to realize he was extremely charismatic and somebody who's a womanizer can charm a jury too. And he had that in common, not the womanizing, but the jury charming with the lawyer who represented him. And he really landed great representation. And it's that lawyer who really develops a strategy for pursuing these life insurance cases and sees him through these criminal scrapes too. But in the case of the first Mrs. Maxwell, the, the reason he's acquitted is the state star witness, a neighbor of his, who was supposed to get up in court and testify exactly what she told the police, which is that the Reverend had never come home the night of August 3rd, 1970, when his first wife was murdered. But when she got up on the stand, totally changed her testimony, provided him an alibi, which was inexplicable to folks at the time, but a couple months later, her husband had died and she had married the Reverend to become the second Mrs. Maxwell. So it was a little more explicable when that happened, but that is the actual explanation for that acquittal. The state was counting on testimony they didn't get. I mean, it's almost like a grotesque conversion of every aspect of the trial at the heart of To Kill a Mockingbird. You have, instead of an innocent black man, you have a guilty black man. Instead of an upstanding lawyer, you have a perhaps not entirely honest lawyer. Instead of reliable, consistent witnesses, you have inconsistent witnesses. Yeah, I think you've intuited right away, Pamela, some of what must have drawn Harper Lee to this story. And even more than that, you know, I think one of the forgotten moral dilemmas of Mockingbird is this problem of vigilantism. And at the end of the novel, when Sheriff Tate and Atticus Finch and Judge Taylor decide what they're going to do about Boo Radley, they actually make an extrajudicial decision. And that is, again, a way that the Maxwell case totally intersects with her interests in law and order and how justice can be found inside and outside of a courtroom, because ultimately the moral dilemma for this part of Alabama was when a man gunned down the reverend, was he going to be convicted or murdered or not? And of course, that that crime he committed was witnessed by 300 people, and it was not clear what would happen in a court of law. Do we know how Harper Lee became interested in the case and what evidence do we have of what it was in particular that she was looking at and and interested in? Unfortunately, there's not as clear an origin story as, you know, she helped Capote out in Kansas within cold blood. And we all know the story of the squib in the New York Times that sent him out there in a conversation with Mr. Sean. But there's nothing quite so clear here. She had actually run into the attorney, Tom Radney, who was involved in all this lawyering. He, Like I said, he had this liberal political career. And he had been up in New York in 1976 for the Democratic National Convention. And we know that they were at the same party. And since he liked to meet anybody in a room, it seems like he probably would have met Harper Lee while he was there. And in later life, he said that he had written her a summary of the case to get her interested. But curiously enough, she she also had a niece who lived in the town where this all happened. And that niece was married to a man who owned a hotel. So she had family here and she had connections. And the truth is she and her two sisters were obsessed with true crime and they followed curious cases like this all the time. So it's possible, you know, this case got a lot of regional and national coverage. So it's possible they told her about it from the Alabama papers or the New York Times had a really stunning article when the Reverend was gunned down at the funeral. So she might have just read about it there. So it's, it's not clear what brought her to town, but there's a lot of letters and correspondence. And when I was reporting, you know, when you ask, What do we know about her interest and her ambition and her struggles with this case? Some of that comes from the interviews I was able to do with people she interviewed while she was in town, and she was articulating her interests and struggles and that sort of thing. But a lot of it comes from correspondence 
from the time. And to my mind, some of the most interesting letters about her struggles with this book she was going to call The Reverend, those are letters she wrote to Gregory Peck. And it's interesting, you know, he's obviously an actor, but they had collaborated on an artistic project. And it seems like that was one of the reasons she felt she could be candid with him about her writing. And so there's some letters, they're from all the way in 1981, one of her older sisters had basically decided to make a dormitory for Nell Harper and get her to work so she could actually finish this book. And she wouldn't let her go fishing, and she was feeding her meals and making sure she was busy writing. And it's at that time over in a little town called Eufaula that she's writing to Gregory Peck about how the book is going and what's hard and what she's hoping to do versus what her publishers and agents want her to do. And what did she say was hard? Well, she says in one letter she's afraid of getting her pantsuit off, <laughs> so she's worried about you know litigation. She tells him quite candidly that her publisher wants score and autopsies, her agents want another bestseller, and she wants to feel like she hasn't defrauded the reader. And I think what she means by that, you know, she mentioned to a lot of people in town that one of the frustrations of the book was it was turning into a tomb about life insurance, and that where she came to town thinking these were clear-cut murders. Actually, they were murkier, and the investigative work hadn't been as good as you might have wanted it to be, so causes of death weren't even determined in some of these cases, and ultimately, you were going to be responsible for explaining some of the life insurance industry so that folks could understand how someone like Willie Maxwell, the Reverend, could operate in this way. And she experienced that as frustration, but I'll tell you, for me, it was one of the most interesting parts of the research, because you get to go all the way back to the Roman Empire and figure out how the heck it is we started to insure lives and why and how those financial markets work and why in this 1960s somebody like Willie Maxwell could take out all these policies without his family members knowing and really just rack up a lot of money as the beneficiary. I mean, the common story with her often is that she froze up, right? After writing this massive bestseller, how do you go on to write your sophomore book? And I wonder if that was in part complicated by the fact that this was a a true crime book and that she, the other book that she had been significantly involved in was In Cold Blood, which was also a huge bestseller and a huge success. So it's almost like, how do you follow both of those things? Yes, she she helped with In Cold Blood, but she seems to have a, a very deliberate intention, you know, to use that reporting as a template, but to really write a different kind of book. Because some of the most interesting letters that she wrote about her time with Capote are quite critical. And, you know, she was she was very scrupulous and as a reporter and as a thinker. And she had a very strong notion of the imporous boundary between fiction and nonfiction. And having been along for that reporting, she really disapproved of some of the fabrications and exaggerations that Capote had included in that book. So I think on the one hand, she must have been inspired by In Cold Blood, but she also saw it as a negative example and was going to try to do things a little differently in Alex City. But you're certainly right that whichever way she looked, she was looking at expectations and pressure. And I think that Probably she was motivated to go down this nonfiction road because she had been struggling for 17 years with these other fiction projects. I think a lot of folks might be familiar. She did this interview in 1964 when she said she all she wanted to do was be the Jane Austen of South Alabama. And that gives you a sense of her writerly ambition. But there's a, another more interesting letter from 1958 where she outlines what she thinks will be the next 15 years of her writing life. And it is a crazy list. And I think that, you know, folks who think they know Harper Lee will be shocked by that list because it's everything from a novel of the United Nations to India 1910 to what Mr. Graham Greene calls an entertainment. So she had these 
writerly ambitions, and it just seems like in the 60s she struggled to produce a second novel. And so by 1977, she's really decided, I've got to do something different, and she, she sets down the road of this true crime narrative nonfiction project. So you said folks who think they know Harper Lee. Did you think you knew Harper Lee going into this, and do you feel like you got to know a different Harper Lee, perhaps? And then connected to that, and I'm sure this is not your favorite question, but why do you think she never wrote that next book? I loved To Kill a Mockingbird as a kid, and one of the reasons I I got started with all of this is just a tremendous admiration for her writing and a tremendous interest in her life because, of course, for all the public appetite for her work, there, there is just a paucity of information about her inner life and interior world. And it was a challenge for me as a reporter, and it's certainly true that on the other side of this, I didn't know her all that well. And I think that, like a lot of people... I had bought into some of the mythos of, well, she was reclusive and she was a small town person. And of course, one of the most shocking things you find out right away is she spent most of her adult life in Manhattan, hobnobbing at Elaine's, going to the Frick, going to the Met, you know, going to see shows. And so she was truly cosmopolitan. So I, I certainly learned a lot about her, although I don't want to overstate the matter. She's continuously enigmatic and It wasn't just that she was private with the press. She was private just about her inner life. And so that was interesting and shocking. And the letters offered some insight into all that and pierced the veil of privacy a little bit. But yes, I was totally shocked by so much of what I learned and especially about her New York life. But do I have an answer for why she didn't write? If it were one thing, if it were a drinking problem, which she had at this time and throughout her life she probably could have gotten treatment. And if it were depression, which she struggled with too, she she could have gotten therapy. And if it were writer's block, then an agent or an editor might have been able to intervene. And it obviously was all of those things together. And and they reinforced one another and they they fueled one another. And we, we can learn a lot more about the circumstances of her life and her emotional volatility or her her substance abuse problems, but no one of those things will ever explain it. That was one of the hardest things for me to kind of understand and dramatize. So I, I hope that for readers it, it, it comes across, even though it's kind of boring plot-wise compared to the true crime story, I hope that it's emotionally interesting to them. Well, I think it all is, and I think we've managed to preserve some mystery for people who have not yet read the book. The book is called, again, Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee by Casey Sepp. Casey, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. So here's a request for our listeners. I get lots of feedback from you, some complaints, lots of kind words. Really appreciate it. You can always reach me directly at books at nytimes.com. I will write back. But you can also, if you feel moved to do so, review us on any platform where you download the podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or somewhere else. Please feel free to review us and, of course, email us at any time. Eliza Griswold joins us now. Her book is called Amity and Prosperity, One Family and the Fracturing of America. It's out now in paperback, and it just won the Pulitzer Prize. So congratulations, Eliza, and thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. You know, before this book, I think most readers knew you as a foreign correspondent. You'd written books about the equator and, and other, other areas of the world. What drew you to this very American story? 
Actually, I began this book in Nigeria, of all places. I was in northern Nigeria some years ago while reporting my last book, and I was doing what we do as journalists. A, a bridge had collapsed, and I had to get across a river, so I was riding on this empty oil barrel across the river. And it was a couple of weeks after the bridge in Minneapolis, I-35W, had collapsed, and 13 people had been killed in that. And I just had this profound sense that so many of the social ills and the, and the collective poverty that we look at around the world in the global south and elsewhere was happening here in the United States. And I wanted to come back to America and try to look at the problems of what we don't invest in mm-hmm. and, and basically the human cost of energy production uh, here in the U.S. And how did you specifically come to write about hydraulic fracking? Because there's a lot in there. There's a lot in there in terms of infrastructure and energy problems in this country that you could go after. I started looking at bridges. I wanted to write about structurally deficient bridges, that sexy topic. And everyone said, yes, Eliza Griswold, we are dying to read your book about bridges. That is one reason I am so lucky to have the editors that I do at FSG, because they were like, okay, all right. And then five months later, of course, I was like, and I'm not writing about bridges, you know. So so I set out wearing uh, hard hats and, you know, with like flasher vests on, those flashing vests, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> right, yes, we didn't. <laughs> um, in case you misconstrued. In, in case you misconstrued. That would be another book. Um, but going out and looking at these bridges. And I actually started looking at locks and levees and dams and infrastructure that was failing and what it means that we don't invest in our lifeline systems in America. And through doing that, I met this amazing hydrogeologist, this woman named Rose Riley with the Army Corps of Engineers. Actually, I think she's a water biologist is her official title. And she was starting to look at fracking. And so she asked me one day if I would go with her down to Morgantown, West Virginia, which is super close to Amity and Prosperity, the two towns in the in the book, and go talk to people and listen to people who were living in these gas fields and hear firsthand what it was like to live in the midst of the energy So it boom. went from the bridge to the water under the bridge. To and the, the pipes. That. Yeah, the pipes and the compressor stations and the pumping stations and, and just, you know, I mean, we have so much pipeline under America. And those pipelines, which connect us, are also so highly explosive, which we're seeing now and, and are becoming and have become a political touchstone. But this was a little bit before that. Okay, I think a lot of people still don't really understand basically what is hydraulic fracking. You drill down just like, you know, there will be blood. You drill down into the earth with your straw two miles or more, straight down. Then you drill out horizontally. Okay, so that's where you get this horizontal of the horizontal hydraulic fracturing. So you're drilling out along the lateral. Mm -hmm. And the reason that you're doing that is because we've known for centuries that that gas was under the ground, but we've known that it was trapped in rock. Mm -hmm. So when you drill out sideways, that pipe that's drilling out sideways has lots of tiny holes in it. Then you pump tremendous, enormous millions and millions of gallons of water and sand and chemicals down into the earth, which go all the way down vertically, then out horizontally under such pressure, about the pressure of a shotgun blast, that they then fracture the rock. And when they— So it's like into the bedrock. Yeah, 
and breaks it apart. It breaks apart what basically was ancient sea floor, okay? And what was in that sea floor was not just the bodies of like old prehistoric sharks, but it was also their poo. Because what fossil fuel is made of is their poo. Like I kept trying to be like in being in very careful about the language, well, the bodies of these things. And, and these wonderful scientists would be like, it's not their bodies. It's also their poo. Mm-hmm. It's rich in carbon, which I'd have to keep saying. So <laughs> we have a 10-week-old puppy. It's a lot about poo right now. <laughs> so anyway, so that rock is fractured. Bubbles of gas are freed from those fractures of rock. And all of that water and that gas, some of it gets left behind under the earth, but a lot of it comes back to the surface, and there is where the natural gas is. So natural gas Mm -hmm. sounds like a lovely energy-forward thing compared with something like coal or oil, which appear to us as inherently dirty and problematic. But it's the process by which this gas is extracted that is the problem. It's the process and it's the amount of methane that it contains. In our overly polarized political landscape, we're always looking to paint the Trump administration as this and that, and and really the policies of the Trump administration around the environment and energy cannot be touted as bad enough. I mean, they're terrible. But if we look at where this began, this began with Obama. It, it, not only Obama, but also Hillary Clinton has supported it. Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State, was a huge, huge proponent of fracking. The idea was that it burns cleaner than coal. And while there is truth to that, it also, methane, which is what natural gas is, is a huge global warming factor. Mm-hmm. It, it it heats up fast. It doesn't last as long, but it's extremely problematic. Mm-hmm. And Obama's idea was that it was a bridge fuel. And that idea that we needed a bridge fuel was basically nonsense was a mistake because what we need to do is move to renewables much more quickly, obviously, and decarbonize. And and that is not what natural gas is. And the larger problem is the results of the fracking process itself, both environmentally and in terms of people's health. Did the Obama administration not know this? No, the Obama administration did not know this or did not calculate according to some of the early findings. And the verdict was out on a lot of these questions. And part of the reason that the verdict was out on the impacts to human health with fracking is people didn't live so close to these wells in Texas, in other places where fracking has a longer history, although it doesn't have a terribly long history. When did it start? That's a hugely contentious point because proponents of fracking will say this has been around for decades, horizontal drilling, and that's directional drilling is what it's called, and that's certainly true. But the scale and the processes that that the technological innovation of fracking itself is relatively new, I think you could date it to the past 20 years. But I'd want to be careful with that because— Fracking has become such a political and contentious football that it's really hard to get to any facts about it at all. But you get to many of these facts through storytelling, through these two towns, not in West Virginia, but nearby in in Pennsylvania. How did you decide, like, how did you come to these two towns and talk about the story as it unfolds? I was fiercely insistent on sticking with the story, and I think there would be room for criticism there for people who would say, well, where's the larger—you're not—this book doesn't say to frack or not to frack. It doesn't. It follows very closely the experience of really a a handful of families who live on a hillside where Appalachia begins in these two towns called Amity. They live in Amity, but one of the families, the family at the heart of the story, is is originally from Prosperity, which is— The Haney's? The Haney's, which is— 
about 10 miles away. Tell us about Stacey Haney. Stacey Haney is a single mom. She just got married, which is super exciting after the book. So I, ha- I, this, I have pictures. I was going to ask, where are they now? Yeah, so I know a yeah. little bit. She's now married to Chris, which is amazing. So she is a nurse and a single mom. She's got two kids on a small farm. She did at this point when I met her in 2011 in March when she was talking for the first time publicly in Morgantown in West Virginia at the airport. She was telling the story of what she knew at that point. And what she knew at that point was that she and her kids had benzene and toluene in their bodies. They were pretty sure they had come from the gas well next door. Her son had gotten arsenic poisoning. They had lost the family goat. A couple of dogs had died on the hillside. And it was really the sickness and death of the animals that helped Stacy and her neighbor, Beth Voiles, put together this mystery of what was happening to them as they were exposed to chemicals, not just from the water, but from the air. Because airborne problems of fracking is one of the least reported aspects of, of the process. Itself. I want to continue with Stacy, but before we get there, just so that people have a sense of how these pollutants, how these chemicals underground then become a health hazard and an environmental hazard. New York has a ban against fracking. There are places where activists have been super successful in pointing out the problems. One of the challenges with it is that that we look down into the earth and we say, well, what's happening down there? Those are the problems. When in fact, most of the problems related to fracking are surface problems. They're spills, they're leaks. In this case, it's actually the bacterial off-gassing of a massive eight-acre frack pond that was larger than the land Stacey and her family lived on. And it was essentially, it had gone septic like a wound. And both the hydrogen sulfide, the bacteria that was being put into the air, that it was just, you know, releasing into the air and the biocide and the thing they tried, the chemical they used to try to kill that, both of them were highly, highly toxic. I mean, you talk about water coming out of the faucets, black. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Some of those more visual aspects, whether we're talking about sediment coming out of the faucet or methane, you know, being able to light your drinking water on fire because there's natural gas in it. Wow. You know, those visual aspects are problematic, but the deeper problems of fracking are harder to tell because we're looking at chemicals that have the possibility to alter genes. And that for Stacy and her kids is the ongoing fear that they actually carry cancer insurance. Stacy has had a hysterectomy. She probably would have had another child with mm-hmm. her new husband, but she's too afraid of what she's been experiencing exposed to because many of these synthetic chemicals are what are called endocrine disruptors. So they disrupt the processes of the human body. And because her kids were 14 and 11, when this really started— Did that interfere with puberty? Not visibly so. They both are prone to extremely odd illnesses, long flus. They get mono easily. They used to be pretty healthy kids. But again, and that's one of the challenges and one of the reasons I stayed so close to the story itself, the causal link between exposure and these illnesses is impossible to make. Right. Well, it's always impossible to prove causation when there's so many factors. But what's amazing to me is the extent to which the company that was operating this fracking operation range resources, they blamed it on shop class, things that are much more far-fetched, just at least on the surface, it seems. I mean, did other kids in that shop class get sick? 
They didn't. So when Stacy went in to talk to the company and to say what's going on and what could have caused my son's arsenic poisoning, that's what the company representative said, that, you know, he might have gotten arsenic poisoning from shop class. And Harley said, oh, I've never taken shop, right? I've been mm-hmm. at home on the couch for a year and a half. So, so he was too sick to go to school. He was too sick to go to school. And what they didn't understand at the time was that what he was doing by staying at home, because they live in a hollow. They live in a depression right next to a hilltop. And that's another problem with fracking. It's often at the highest point on a hill that you're going to put this well site because it's easiest to flatten it. Like this is like the, where they take the mountaintop, right? Exactly. And so all of the those airborne toxins and chemicals, the bacteria and the endocrine disruptors, all of them were going up in the air. And if they were heavier than the air, which many times they were, they were dropping down the hill and sitting in this pocket where the Haney's lived in their little farmhouse. What happens to all of the chemicals that are way underground that were used in the fracking process itself? I mean, do they just stay down there? Is that like out of sight, out of mind? We don't have to worry about that? Or does that somehow rise up and poison the the soil? Every connection point of fracking, like you can say, okay, well, let's now talk about the well bore. Like, let's talk about the casing, the part that seals that vertical as you go down. So when people say, well... Fracking happens beneath the aquifer. It's beneath groundwater. So how could it contaminate groundwater? Well, first of all, in many cases, there are crack. You're cracking rock. Mm-hmm. On top of which, if that well casing fails, that vertical is going through the aquifer. Right. So you are going to poison the water by definition with that. A certain percentage, depending on the well site, of the waste stays underground. And a certain percentage comes back to the surface and handling the waste related to fracking because it's not just chemicals, it's radioactive material. And one of the things that companies will often say is, well, radioactive material, arsenic, other, you know, other aspects are naturally occurring. And you can say, okay, naturally occurring doesn't mean they should be in my water. So that's or in such high concentrations or in such high concentrations. And so that's one of the problems, again, where you get down to splitting hairs related to fracking and a huge back and forth. So to go back to the Haney's and to these two towns, what happened here is that these individuals sold the gas rights to their properties with the hopes of either making millions or at least having money. In Stacey's case, right, she just wanted money to buy a barn. She wanted to build her dream barn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And for she like $8,000 for right? eight grand. Yeah. She knew that that's what it was going to cost, you know. They love their animals. I mean, the animals are like children in this family. And they were out in the rain drinking from this kiddie pool. And she was like, we need to do better by them. And she also, you know, Stacy grew up poor. They call it growing up Amity. That's what they called it when she was younger, which meant really being a child of the collapse of the steel mills, of the death of the industrial age in this area, in Appalachia. So she had grown up without. And the idea of securing this modest lease also meant securing her place in the middle class. And I think for me, watching her over this seven-year period, what I saw most of psychologically or even spiritually, you could say, was this disillusionment with the American dream. Because she'd grown up poor thinking that she would do better than her parents had. 
you know, her dad's a Vietnam vet, out-of-work steel worker. Her mom cleans houses. And I think she thought that with hard work, she could change her life. And this process has taught her that that's not true. And I think for her, that has been the greatest struggle in a way. So if someone like Stacey Haney goes to Range Resources and is basically given the runaround, is not given any kind of support, they undermine her sort of at every turn, you would think that then she would have someone to turn to. And as you pointed out, it's 2011. Fracking's already been around a while and long enough that they're seeing the effects. President Obama has been in office since 2008. Even though he supported fracking, his administration is supposed to be stronger in terms of environmental regulation and enforcement. Does she have somewhere to go to say, hey, look at this, you know, to some kind of regulatory organization? Is there at the state level or at the federal level? She has nowhere to go. She ha- she tries to go first to the state level. Essentially, she gets a, a runaround, which in its details, that was some of the hardest reporting of the book. Because this is the, the Pennsylvania Department of uh, Environmental Protection. Exactly, which is sometimes called the Pennsylvania Department of Don't Expect Protection. That's one of the things that is also I try to be really careful about. It's not just collusion with a company. It's not that they're somehow deliberately bad guys. They're desperately underfunded, and they have to rely on the companies themselves for the data of, is this well leaking? What are the chemicals we should be testing for? If it is leaking, all of that information they can't afford to gather without the help of the company. And again, this is under Ed Rendell, a Democratic governor. What did he do to so the funding this is of just, just after. So Rendell gutted the Department of Environmental Protection, but he did that because he was facing the 2008 budget crisis. And part of the reason that he what he did to plug that hole in the budget is lease hundreds and thousands of acres of public lands to oil and gas concerns. And still, the Department of Environmental Protection was woefully underfunded and doesn't really like to claim that themselves, mm-hmm. says we have enough inspectors, but really that's just not the case. So all, all. that money that rolled into the state from industry didn't eventually funnel back to regulatory agencies like the Department of Environmental Protection. No, and all that money didn't really funnel back to the state at all because the rates, like the tax rates, for instance, that drillers pay in Pennsylvania are woefully smaller than they are even in Texas. So there's the idea of short-selling the resources of Pennsylvania is something that actually both right and left gets behind. You know, you have conservative Republicans saying, what are you doing, Pennsylvania government, to our property values? And what are you doing not assessing these guys for more because you're just impoverishing us? As I said earlier, the book is out now in paperback. It came out last year. Have you been back to Amity or Prosperity since the book came out? And what is the reaction among people in those towns to your portrayal? I've been back a couple of times. I'm about to go back this weekend again. People want to tell their own stories. Like, people don't really want to talk about the book. Like, I showed up at something called the Strawberry Center, got ready to give my book talk there. And what happened is I was about one minute into it, and I realized it was absurd. Like, what was I doing reading from this book that so many people had lived? So we just ended up passing the microphone around, and people would just tell their story of their own personal amity and prosperity because the tangle with resource extraction, especially around coal mining, right, which is why 
Stacy and some of her neighbors were so keen on fracking because they were terrified that the coal mine was going to come and do the same thing. Maybe this newfangled kind of drilling would protect them from the coal mine. So people told the stories of losing water, of losing farms, of what it meant to live in the heartland of the loss of American resources. So that was pretty amazing. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens this coming weekend if you hear yet more stories and sort of where things are. Totally. Congratulations again on winning the Pulitzer Prize. Thank you. Eliza, great to have you here. Eliza Griswold is the author of Amity and Prosperity, One Family and the Fracturing of America. Alexandra Alter joins us now with news from the publishing world. Hey, Alexandra. Hey, Pamela. What's happening? So this week, I think the biggest publishing story is actually happening in television. The epic fantasy series Game of Thrones is concluding this week with the finale of its final season. And it's a really interesting example of what happens to a fandom when a TV show eclipses the books. So there's been kind of this schism among Game of Thrones fans ever since the show's premiere in 2011, with the fandom divided into watchers and readers and a middle ground of people who did both. But this really got heightened in 2015 when the plot of the show went beyond George R. R. Martin's novels, which he's still working on. So the question this week is, when the show is concluded, Mm -hmm. is that the end of the story? Is this the canon? And for book purists, this has really been complicated by the fact that Martin is an executive producer on the show and has written some of the episodes. So this is presumably following his map. But there's still sort of this unease about this finale and whether it really represents the end of the story and whether the books, when they finally come out, will actually adhere to that map, or if they don't, is George R. R. Martin now writing novelizations of his own story That's so after crazy. it was adapted from his own books. So it'll be really interesting to see these two groups react. I have to admit, even though it goes against type, given my job, I'm a watcher and not a reader. I was going to say, where do you align? <laughs> what a betrayal. I, I will read the books, but I didn't want to spoil the show. Wait, I, I love the, the show. That is a wrong way of thinking. I know, I that know. That is not okay. I read a couple of them, and then I really loved— I'm going to kick you over to another <laughs> podcast this week, Alexandra. <laughs> so, yeah, so I'm one of the anxious fans waiting to see how this will all wrap up. And there was an interesting scuffle even within the creators of the show and George R. R. Martin this week. Martin had to come out and squash rumors that he'd finished the last two books in the series. One of the actors on the show said this at a fantasy convention and everyone became furious. He suggested that Martin had finished the books but had made a deal with HBO not to publish them until the TV show was concluded. And so Martin went on his blog and said that was absolutely not true. He wishes he had finished the books. His fans are always berating him for taking too long because now they feel like this ending has been taken away from them and they were committed from the beginning, from the 1990s when he first started. So Martin came out and said, no, in fact, you know, why would my publishers sit on these incredibly valuable books, which make millions of dollars every time they're released. So that's not true, apparently. And we'll just have to keep waiting for those last two books. Well, I feel very at peace with this situation because I am neither a watcher <laughs> nor a reader. And You're what's called like, a never-throner. I'm a never-throner. There's, there's a name for you. Oh, really? That sounds very <laughs> condemnatory, but I feel like I've saved a lot of time and energy. <laughs> well, I, I suggest that you take a few weeks off and just binge watch it. All right. Maybe. Okay. Alexander, thanks so much. Thanks for having me.
Joining us now to talk about what books they are critiquing this week are critics Dwight Garner, Jennifer Salai, and Pearl Siegel. Hey, guys. Hi, Pamela. Hi, Pamela. Dwight, let's start with you. What did you write about? Uh, you know, I reviewed the new book of stories by Karen Russell. It's her third book of stories. She's also written a novel called Swamplandia, which, which got a lot of attention. Her stories are, are, are grand and a bit crazy and gothic and beautiful. She has a very vivid imagination. You know, stories like, you know, aging vampires living among us in a lemon grove, a woman giving suck after her childbirth to the devil with whom she's made a bargain. It turns out it's not the devil. It's just a minor devil. And she's so mad that she, you know, she's breastfeeding this devil. The book is called Orange World and other stories, by the way. Uh, it's her third, as I said. And it's funny. I, her stories appear in The New Yorker pretty often. And, I, and I, I like them there. I really do because they're just this break from the fierce fact-checking of The New Yorker. They're, they're so extravagant. It's like walking into this oasis, this jungle amidst the desert. But I, as I was reading them, I started thinking also about why I don't like her stories more. And I, and I, I, I kind of want to like them more. And she's a writer I admire, as I say in my review, also because I grew up in Southwest Florida in large part. And a lot of her fiction is set there. And not much good fiction has come out of Southwest Florida. So I, I, you know, I, I've gravitated to her as a writer since, since she was just starting. Some of the things I thought while reading it were I, sometimes there's not enough human stuff in her stories for me quite enough. I sometimes felt there's nothing at stake in these stories. You meet her people and you, you know, they're wild. And she's so imaginative and the writing's very good as well. But I, in the end, I didn't care really from story to story whether her characters live or died. I just didn't have this great attachment to them. I didn't really care, even though she's never dull. And so I'm just, I'm still fighting with this writer in, in my own mind, I think. Oh, is it about like she's like the, the premise is what? It's, it's meant premise. to sort of, it's, yeah, it's, like it's, the premise is so spectacular and that kind of is meant to suffice. Yeah, and as comedians always say, if you buy the premise, you buy the bit. You know, and I'm not that the kind of reader, really. I mean, I, I, sort of, I sort of want a little more than that. I'm not a great genre reader, and I'm trying to get better at that. Science fiction, for example, I'm trying to read the best stuff and figure out what I like and don't I'm like I'm on about that it. path, too. Yeah, and, and she's, in a way, she's, she's a genre all to herself. And, and I admire her. I'm still working on it. Is there a critique you know, is there some kind of social critique happening in these sort of fairy tale premises, or is it just? Oh, in a big way, she's yeah. a very bright person, and and you know, just for example, the story about breastfeeding the monster is so much about pre and postpartum fears of contamination, and all of her stories are about ecological despoilation. Um, she writes really well about you know, she'll set a story in in Florida, sort of post global warming apocalypse, and and these women who are really bats are gondoliers, and they echo they communicate by echolocation. That's the kind of story she writes, and but it's all set in this crazy post disaster. World, so yeah, she's very. Her stories are, are work work on many many levels. So I, I, I would not. That's not a criticism of mine at all. I have to ask this because you were just in South Florida. Did you read these while you were there? A little bit, yeah. And it's fun to read while there. Her novel Swamplandia, which is about kids growing up in this theme park, you know, this sort of Southwest Florida theme park, is her best, I think, evocation of what Florida's like. And she she gets it. I mean, she she gets it pretty well. Who are your favorite Florida fiction writers? Oh God, you know Charles Wilford, the thriller writer, is great. Peter Matheson set a lot of fiction down there. Carl Hyacin gets this kind of honky-tonk side. He's not Southwest Florida. He's the other coast. But These I, are I, like, these are nuances that are just like, I'm like, Florida. Uh, well, the other coast Disney is Miami, World, though. You know I mean, know? I'm on, you know, the, <laughs> Gulf, South, the, the Gulf Coast is used to be much quieter. Now mm-hmm. Naples has gotten really busy. But there aren't a lot of Naples, Florida writers. I mean, a lot of the, uh, the grand bestseller writers have moved there. I mean, Charles Ludlam lived there, and, and Robin Cook, the medical thriller writer, lives there. You know, people retire there and write these mega bestsellers, but there's not yeah, a lot Yeah, Thomas of, Harris lives there. Does he know? He does know, anyway, in Miami, I but think. But not many so. writers grew up there and became and became fiction writers. Pearl, you also reviewed something you didn't like as much as you wanted to. <laughs> I reviewed a book by a writer I revere named Hamid Hanif, who's perhaps 
one of the most fearless observers of Pakistan and perhaps I think the best living Pakistani novelist. You're going to upset other people. I stand by it. Again, speaking of people that are a genre to himself, you know, he gets compared to Joseph Heller a lot, but in his books, A Case of Exploding Mangoes and Our Lady of Alice Bhatti, he has these incredibly sad, savage satires of life in Pakistan, hypocrisies of war. And he has a new book, a new novel called Redbirds. And as I was reading it, you know, I was just so, I was mystified. You know, when a book doesn't work by a writer you love, first, you don't trust yourself sometimes. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm not reading carefully enough. Turn on some more lights, sit in a hard-back chair. Again, he's somebody I've read, I've read everything. He's How many written. books has he written? This is his third novel, and he's okay. written one nonfiction. Anyway, so I'm, I'm reading this book, Redbirds, and I'm not getting it. I'm not figuring it out. And then after a while, I'm like, no, something is not happening here. Like, it's just not cohering. He doesn't sound like himself. He's not doing the things. I mean, and not to say that a writer can't, you know, make departures, but it feels strange when you know that a writer has, you know, can land a joke, can really pull together a character. And the book is sort of, the pacing was really strange. And so, you know, I started to really think about why isn't this book working? And so my review is a little bit about what doesn't work in this book, right? So the the premise is it's a... U.S. fighter pilot lands in a desert and he's rescued by the very camp that he set out to bomb. And he's sort of taken under the wing of this clever and scrupulous teenager who wants to use this pilot to get his brother back who's disappeared. But nothing much happens for 300 pages. You know, it's sort of, there's a lot of um, characters sort of talking about their philosophies, their sort of perspective on the forever war. You know, the sort of intimation that something's going to happen, but, you know, plot never quite comes together. So again, in my review, I started to think about why, why, why did this happen? And I really feel that with Hanif, he's coming to the end of satire, right? So what do you do when, when you are perhaps the, one of the most famous satirists of your generation? And satire now s- starts to seem like a symptom of impotence. It doesn't seem powerful. <laughs> it seems to be this thing that you can do, but you can't embarrass anybody. You can't shock or shame anybody. And the epigraph from the book comes from a friend of his name, Sabine Mahmood, who is a famous activist in Pakistan who was killed, I think, in 2015 and was good friends with uh, Hanif. And, and her her killing really shocked a lot of you know Pakistan's writers. And I think there's something about seeing her epigraph beginning the book, you know, and, and seeing that this is one of the most fearless writers that Pakistan has produced, who's written these things at great personal cost, right? And, and there's something about her ghost hovered over this book for me. And all these efforts at satire that weren't working out, this writer who was radically trying to change his voice. It just feels like this book is in transition. It felt like there was a commentary about limitations of satire at this moment in, in, in writing. Not only in Pakistan, I felt it a little bit as an American reader too, you know? Um, what next? What lies beyond satire? Is a little bit like some of the questions I started to think about. So again, yeah, I didn't love the book, but he's a writer that even his bad books produce such amazing, interesting questions. Jen, you were the sole person here who, who not liked only my book this week. <laughs> loved your book. This was a yeah, really, I really, I really, li- I really like the book this week. It's by Brenda Wineapple, and it's called The Impeachers, and it's about the first presidential impeachment, one of only two in the country. And so she tells the history of what happened to President Andrew Johnson after he ascended to the White House when Lincoln was assassinated. And she goes through, year by year, his mounting confrontations with Congress and the radical Republicans in Congress who really objected to the way that Johnson really took it on himself to not just present himself as a reconciliator with the South, but 
also, at least in the opinion of the radical Republicans, really indulged former rebels and former Confederacy. I mean, he was a terrible president. Well, yes, at least this is the impression one definitely gets from the book and also from more recent history books. But I will say that looking at the historiography, it's interesting because for a long time after Johnson's presidency, there was this sort of mainstream school of historical thought that even if he wasn't a good president, Mm -hmm. that the impeachment proceedings were really disgraceful, that that was a disgrace to, you know, the institution of government in the United States. Because I think that there was this sense that, well, first of all, he was acquitted, so we should say that. There were 11 articles of impeachment brought against him, most of them revolving around his attempts to dismiss the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton. And so Congress had brought this legislation called the Tenure of Office Act that basically said that he couldn't do something like that. He couldn't fire a member of his cabinet without congressional approval. And he resisted. He said that that was unconstitutional. The law itself was unconstitutional. So there was this, I mean, it's it's interesting, especially to sort of think about it in light of current events where, you know, you've got... You mean there is a contemporary <laughs> parallel? We, we, we won't necessarily talk about it ex- explicitly, but just sort of the sense that both sides are accusing the other side of essentially violating the same thing. And so he was eventually acquitted, and we should also say he presided over the United States during the beginning of the Reconstruction era, which lasted, I think, 10 or 11 years until the late 1870s. And there was a school of historical thought afterwards. The Reconstruction era was this failure, and that it was a failure not because it ended with essentially the betrayal of black people in the South, but that it was a failure because there was a lot of corruption in government and that there was this attempt to sort of force change on the South that wasn't fair to them. I mean, that was that was the dominant historical perspective. And so it's interesting to look at because, you know, when JFK wrote Profiles in Courage, I think it was 1959, it was still the case that there was a sense that the seven... Republican defectors who essentially helped acquit Johnson, that they were heroes because they were trying to uphold the institution of the presidency against partisan politics. But that changed afterwards. And so I think the last 50 years or so, you do see this understanding that Johnson was a bad president, that Reconstruction was an era that was ended in such a way that actually Reconstruction itself offered promise and that the impeachment wasn't necessarily the disaster that the historians for a long time presented it to be. Among those who urge the current Congress to bring the impeachment process against President Trump, those who are urging against it, sounds like have been doing it not just for what they perceive as the political fallout from that, But also because, as you point out, it's not actually an easy thing to succeed at. Right. And I think the question is, is if it were to happen and it didn't pass the Senate, which right now it it wouldn't pass the two-thirds of the Senate, what does that mean? I mean, what are the implications of that politically as well as, I guess, institutionally? To have someone be acquitted. Exactly. I mean, would it be taken as a vindication? Probably. Would it embolden? The current executive, perhaps. I think that those are all questions that are raised 
by the book in a really interesting way. All right. Let's run down those titles again. Dwight? My book was uh, Karen Russell's Orange World and Other Stories. Mine was Red Birds by Mohammed Hanif. And mine was The Impeachers by Brenda Wineapple. All right. Dwight, Jen, Parle, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back, albeit not right away. The Book Review Podcast is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with the great help of my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.